I'm Loreto Rojas. And I'm Cal Winslow. Loretta and I are back with Talking About California today with a new special series, shorter than the others, but involving issues of the greatest importance. The war, there is a war raging in Ukraine. We all know that, so our purpose here is not to compete with the news outlets, cable and radio, but to try to get closer to the causes and possible consequences of this war. So we're extraordinarily pleased to have three of the finest voices out there, political scholars, journalists of the highest order, joining us. But we should get right to this. There's a lot to talk about. Our first guest in the series is Patrick Coburn. Um, Patrick Coburn is an award-winning columnist, a foreign correspondent in Moscow, Washington, Jerusalem, Belfast, Beirut, Baghdad. He's the author of nine books, including The Rise of the Islamic State, which was translated into 18 languages. He wrote with his son, Henry, the best-selling Henry's Demons, Living with Schizophrenia, which is, was a finalist for the Costa Books Award. His latest book, Behind Enemy Lies, was published in October. He is a frequent contributor to the London Independent and the Financial Times. He has also worked as a correspondent in Moscow and Washington, and is a frequent contributor to the London Review of Books. He has written three books on Iraq's recent history. He won the Martha Wellhorn Prize in 2005, the James Cameron Prize in 2006, the Orwell Prize for Journalism in 2009, Foreign Commentator of the Year, Foreign Affairs Journalist of the Year, British Journalism Awards in 2014, Foreign Reporter of the Year, the Press Award in 2014. And I'd like to add a personal note here. I hope you won't mind. Patrick is the brother of the late um, Alexander Coburn, who lived just up the road from here uh, in Petrolia and who visited Mendocino County many times. Back then, uh, a question, not altogether as a joke, was in times of crisis like this, what would Alexander say? So we'd invite him down for a meeting. Good morning, Patrick. Welcome. Thank you. Good morning. Well, here's some background here that might help us. This isn't the first war you've covered. How would this one fit in or not with recent conflicts in Iraq, Iran, Syria, Yemen, and, and Lebanon? That's a good question, which I've been thinking about quite a lot. In some ways, they look the same. You know, you look at uh, bombarded cities in uh, uh, Ukraine, um, hit by Russian uh, shell fire and uh, bombing, and they look uh, a bit like cities that have been uh, bombed by the Syrian government, backed by the Russians in, uh, in Damascus and East Aleppo. But they also look very much like uh, the uh, Islamic State, the de facto capital in Syria, Raqqa, which is devastated from end to end, and or Mosul, particularly the old city of Mosul in Iraq. I covered both sieges or Fallujah in uh, Iraq. 
that uh, the actual destruction looks much the same. Uh, armies and air forces always say uh, they're trying to avoid civilian casualties and so forth, uh, which may or may not be true. But if you uh, bombard a civilian area, you're going to kill a lot of civilians. So that's the same. Um, you know, there, there are other aspects to this. Um, the wars in the Middle East that you mentioned, a lot of them were stalemates, you know, that neither side won. And these wars went on and on and on. You know, I think uh, Trump called them the, the endless wars uh, in uh, Iraq and Syria and Libya and so forth. And uh, I was wondering over the last few days whether Ukraine could be the same, that you'd have neither side winning. But the war goes on and the country gets completely devastated. You have physical destruction. Uh, you have human destruction, obviously people killed. But you also have what you, you, you have in Baghdad and Damascus and elsewhere is that anybody who can get out does get out, particularly those who are most skilled, you know. So you've got a brain surgeon in, uh, in Baghdad, you know, he, he will be, uh, you know, heading for California or New Zealand or uh, somewhere like that. And once a country has been depleted of people like that, you know, then it sinks right down. When I first went to Iraq in uh, around the end of the seven, in about 1980, a little earlier, it had the same standard of living as, uh, as Greece. Um, Forty years later, its standard of living is about the same as Mali in uh, uh, North Africa. So, uh, you know, you can have long-term destruction of Ukraine and very similar to the long-term destruction of, in the Middle East. Um, you know, if you look at a map of Europe, people, everybody sits horrified by the idea of a new war in Europe, saying, you know, apart from the Balkan Wars in the 90s, this is the first really big war we've had in Europe since 1945. But you get a bigger map, which includes the Middle East and uh, North Africa, you know, we've got, and uh, when you look at Ukraine, it, it's just to the north of, all those wars we've seen before uh, and in some ways is like it but actually it's much more dangerous than these wars because it brings into confrontation two nuclear powers uh, you know the US and uh, backed by Britain and uh, France and, and Russia uh, so you know can, when you have an end could you have an endless war a uh, stalemate in Ukraine which didn't begin to escalate into something more serious and finally into a nuclear exchange. Um, I'm not sure that people take this seriously enough. You know, when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, you know, there was, people were deeply conscious of the threat of nuclear war, you know, the Cuban crisis, but uh, people of, uh, but also, you know, um, um, places where people would uh, take refuge if there was a nuclear exchange, you know, the summit meetings about limiting nuclear weapons. But that concern kind of went out the window with the collapse of the Soviet Union. But <laughs> Moscow and uh, Russia are still a nuclear power. It's actually in some ways more dangerous today than it was then. And actually, recently, it's got more dangerous because Russia has been doing badly in Ukraine, as we all know. So, you know, the Russian army, we can talk about this later as to how true this is, but generally one can say it's weaker than people thought it was. Therefore, if the conflict goes on, and NATO, you know, is 
kind of stronger compared to the Russian army. So if there is a conflict, you know, the temptation for, for the Russians to use uh, nuclear weapons will be greater. Um, I don't mean that they're going to launch uh, interco intercontinental ballistic missiles at, uh, uh, at New York or Los Angeles or London or Paris. Uh, I don't think that would happen that way. But you know, they could easily use tactical nuclear weapons to blow up a convoy, blow up an area, uh, just to show, uh, you know, we've still got teeth. Uh, so actually, it's it's not just got dangerous, it's got more dangerous over the last four weeks. And I don't think that people have really taken that on board. Right. Um, uh, another bigger question before we get maybe to some of the detail. You must wonder sometimes in your work, uh, why so much war? Yeah, I mean... Why so much war in the Middle East um, and North Africa? I mean, I, there are about a dozen wars going on there, about six sort of conventional conflicts, about six guerrilla wars. Uh, and they, you know, sometimes they're hot, sometimes they burn a little low, but they're, they're, they're all very serious. They devastate countries. The outside world sort of pays no attention to what goes on in Yemen. The whole place is devastated. Most of the population is starving or in the or suffering from malnutrition or in Libya. Nobody seems to care about that very much. They seem to care a lot in 2011 with getting rid of Gaddafi. And this was going to be so great for the Libyan people. We've, we've had war ever since in Libya. Um, Afghanistan, you know, 40 years of war. Is the war over now? You know, by no means sure of that. Uh, why so much war? Um, I think outside interference is one thing. I think that all these, this area has been kind of unstable really since the, since the end of the First World War. Uh, it's been, you know, one of the great unstable areas of, of Earth. Um, I think that, I think actually the end of the Cold War in some ways made things worse. When we had the Cold War going on, the US cared a lot and Moscow cared a lot. You know, who controlled these areas? Who controlled Somalia? Now, the US doesn't really care that much, you know, if there's a conflict going on there. Uh, so the war never ends. And you have another factor, which I don't, I don't think people really quite understand that after the US intervention in Iraq uh, between 2003 and uh, uh, 2011, uh, the US in particular, other countries did this, but US in particular um, went over to sort of a kind of air war, which was going to be politically okay because it meant that the US wouldn't suffer many casualties. And this was the use of air power and special forces that you'd use new uh, uh, drones and everything else to select your targets. You'd, uh, you know, you'd have. Uh, um, maybe the Afghan army on the ground, but then you'd supply this uh, air power and that would sort of enable them to win. But it turned out it didn't enable them to win. They became over-dependent on air power. Uh, and it, maybe it was good for the US, you know, but it meant it was very bad for civilians because whatever people's air forces say, they still can't distinguish uh, who is in a house or who is in a bunker or something like that, whether it's soldiers or civilians. So uh, they invariably kill a large number of civilians. But that type of 
war that uh, the US would not commit troops, would stop the other side winning. Uh, sort of half worked, but it meant that there were just endless conflicts uh, in which the US could back up one side, um, but uh, nobody would come out a winner. Again, that meant that these wars went on and on and on with the horrific results that I've described at a certain point, the level of human and physical destruction is such that you can't reverse it within, you know, within decades. Yes, yeah, no, a terrible picture. Uh, Patrick, would you call this a war of imperialisms? Um, I'm not sure. Um, you know, Russia wanted to get back Ukraine. You know, they genuinely felt, uh, I think, that NATO was moving eastwards, um, had moved into Eastern Europe, that this posed a threat, that Ukraine wanted to join NATO. This increased the threat. Um, the, you, you know, what was very peculiar was that the Europeans had said repeatedly, as had the US, that they were not going to send troops, soldiers to Ukraine. Now, uh, NATO is a military alliance. You know, the Article 5, the crucial one for NATO is that an attack on one is an attack on all, and they will uh, respond militarily. But since they were never going to go to Ukraine, I think this may have given a full sense of confidence to the Ukrainian government. It may have caused exaggerated fears in Moscow, but didn't actually um, put troops on the ground. I mean, a good thing to my mind. But it may have heated up the situation and led to the present crisis. Uh, I mean, that said, um, it seems to me that it was a, a crazy thing to, 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 to intervene, for Putin to intervene like this, since, uh, you know, just from a military point of view, they were never going to be able to take over Ukraine. That's a country of 44 million people. It's three times the size of France. It's uh, three times the size of Britain. You know, it's, um, it just couldn't be done. Um, so, uh, you know, it was, to my mind, an extraordinary historic blunder by Putin. But was it straight imperialism? They wanted to, uh, the Russians wanted to control it. They clearly didn't understand what was happening on the ground, that they, at one time, Ukraine used to be divided between sort of pro-Russians and anti-Russians, but that phase has really passed. So they m met uh, resistance across the board. And this is another worrying feature, going back to my point about the threat of nuclear war, which is that if the Kremlin gets wrong, the state of the political state of Ukraine, which after all is just down the road from there, if it also gets wrong, the likely reaction of the Europeans in particular um, to uh, a Russian invasion of Ukraine, then when it comes to the use of nuclear weapons and so forth, it might get things wrong again. You know, what we have is a, a record of, a recent record of serial misjudgments. And there's no reason that the same misjudgments might not apply to uh, the use of nuclear weapons.
Um, following up on, on, on some of that, just a, a, another kind of definitional uh, question to help us uh, see, see things as they develop. Um, would you say that this is the Cold War redux, uh, you know, following on your discussion of nuclear weapons? It is, yeah, but it's kind of, uh, it's a kind of super, uh, super uh, Cold War. You know, there seems to be a degree of hatred um, there, which is perfectly uh, comparable to, uh, you know, red scares in the 1940s and 50s in America and uh, elsewhere. Um, you know, it's accompanied by sort of general Russophobia, you know, uh, across the board, you know, uh, in the United States, you know, in Cardiff, in Wales, here, you know, orchestra suddenly said they would not be playing Tchaikovsky, 1812. Uh, you know, this is kind of reminds me, you know, the First World War, famously, the beginning of the First World War, August 1914, you know, people were sort of attacking uh, Dachshunds, German dogs in the streets, you know, there was sort of Germanophobia um, after the German invasion of uh, Belgium, but it, it's that sort of mood. Um, so, you know, it's a kind of war hysteria, which uh, seems to me you know, like any hysteria, it's really bad, but it's applied to war, uh, then it leads, you know, people to make bad mistakes. The, um, you know, it's weird, but and a bit frightening to my mind, but you'll hear guys, people say, you know, who meant to know what they're talking about, uh, or at least occupied uh, distinguished positions, saying on the one hand, you know, Russia is run by a bad man and so forth. Then they go on to say, yeah, but, you know, we should really uh, challenge uh, Russia. You know, we should, uh, uh, you know, impose a no-fly zone. And then if you say, but uh, what if they respond by threatening to use nuclear weapons? Well, so, well, well, I think Russia's probably back down, you know. <laughs> They'd sort of see this isn't a great idea. So suddenly they're saying, but the mad person is in the Kremlin, which I don't think he is actually mad. But um, at the same time, this mad person is going to... Uh, behave with uh, extraordinary moderation when it comes to the question of using nuclear weapons. Yeah, he's sort of the new Saddam, only maybe even more so. He uh, uh, Maybe you could tell us uh, a, a bit about uh, what you think is happening elsewhere. I think we even here in Mendocino County, we have a feeling uh, for the what you've called the war history hysteria that's uh, building up. We have, uh, I've noticed in the past days, um, Ukrainian flags uh, around uh, our towns. Um, is it, are you saying it's the same in Europe, East and Central Europe? Yeah, it's the same in Britain, you know, it's sort of, I was in, in Oxford yesterday in, in uh, England, you'd see Ukrainian flags around the place, you know, it's sort of, uh, you know, I can see why people do it. They're not sort of offering their homes to Ukrainian refugees. I can see why they're doing that. Um, I think that, you know, Russians are conducting, you know, air attack and artillery on civilian areas. So, you know, you have wall-to-wall television of, uh, you know, wounded children and so forth. It's kind of understandable that people uh, feel really angry. But, uh, you know, it's, 
what sort of, you know, what I find about this is, you know, this is kind of true. These children, you know, are, have been wounded, they've been killed, or um, these are atrocities. But there's a sort of selectivity about this, you know, because I'm kind of very used to this, you know, in Beirut, you know, in the Lebanese Civil War, the uh, the 80s, um, the um, and I tend to, you know, and I've sort of seen what Mosul is like, you know, after U.S. and airstrikes against Islamic State. You know, I, I used to have quite a lot of contacts in the old city of Mosul. And I would, I'd ring them up during the siege. At the end of the siege, I wanted to get a hold of them. I couldn't find any of them because they're all dead. Um, you know, it's, uh, propaganda isn't just about um, mendacity, about lying. It's, a, it's about sort of selectivity. And if you just sort of focus on uh, purely have endlessly on television quite real uh, things that the Russians have done, then you can sort of work people up or people get worked up into a sort of state of hysteria um, in which they begin to do stupid things. You know, this war should end to my mind as soon as you can. And it'll have to end with some sort of compromise. But the longer this goes on, the more difficult a compromise is to achieve. You know, this is one of the things that happened in Syria in 2011. Uh, diplomats who were American diplomats were very anti-Assad, Bashar al-Assad, but also thought, you know, maybe they could work out some sort of deal. But they couldn't because the media had sort of by that time so demonized Assad that even being seen talking to him was, you know, being pilloried as a uh, as a um, as a crime, uh, and the only cry was, you know, get rid of Assad, which couldn't really be done for various reasons, and this was a, a complicated war. Um, but once you have that type of demonization of Putin of Russia, um, then it becomes that bit more difficult to end the war. But people say, you know, it's not enough to the Russians, let's get out of Ukraine. But also, you know, we want regime change in the Kremlin. You know, we want uh, war crimes uh, tribunals. You know, that's uh, basically they're saying, let's fight this to a finish. They don't actually say that, but that's really what it means. So uh, the longer this goes on, the more you get in that sort of state of mind, which is this kind of state of mind we had in the First World War, that uh, such is the degree of hatred which has been generated that no compromise is really feasible and no action and also it gets sort of broader and broader that attacking any russian you know, it's contradictory saying russia is run by a dictatorship who will crush any dissent but by the way we're going to have a series of sanctions which is going to be a communal punishment of all russians although at the same time we're saying all these Russians don't actually have any effect, political power, and don't affect what happens in, in, in the Kremlin. Um, so that one never works. It didn't work in Iraq, did it? For 13 years of uh, UN sanctions imposed on Iraq, during which Saddam Hussein was uh, building new palaces for himself and his family. He was building uh, giant mosques. Um, at the end, he sort of started writing novels, which is uh, a bit more, uh, a bit less dangerous. You know, but he and his family were not affected 
um, buy this. In fact, you know, you can do it if you're the top guy and uh, uh, when there's sort of shortages, you can, you can make a lot of money. The rest of Iraqis were, and Iraqi society was destroyed, uh, with you know, which is bad news for them, bad news for everybody. Uh, so this idea that sanctions are imposed and they'll stay there until Putin goes or something. Again, this is very sort of, uh, this is likely to ensure a long war. It's likely to ensure even more destruction in Ukraine. It's likely to edge us closer to a nuclear exchange. Thank you so much, uh, Patrick. Uh, you're really informing us of uh, um, all the conflicts that are happening in the in the area and um, and understanding more this line of um, development. Uh, but I would like to stop here just for a moment to tell our audience that they are listening to talking about California. Uh, I'm your co-host uh, Loreto Rojas, and I'm here with Carl Winslow today in KZYX, Mendocino County, listener-supported radio station. And our guest today is Patrick Coburn, the award-winning journalist. To continue this um, conversation, I wanted to ask you about this idea that we hear in the press about that the Russians uh, have made a grave mistake, suggesting that they are losing the war already. I mean, you're, you're... telling us a different scenario. So could you please talk a little bit more about that? Well, first of all, I don't think we know, you know, where is all the information coming from? It's coming from the Ukrainian side. It may be true, may not be true. You know, it's also an information war. So, you know, the Ukrainians do exactly what I'd do if I was in their shoes, which is report the good news about their the war they're fighting and not report the bad news. So all we get from Ukrainians is a, you know, is a stream of... Um, Ukrainian victories, you know, they also facilitate uh, Western correspondents to go to, you know, look at a Russian convoy, or, um, uh, which has been uh, shot up and um, so forth. So, you know, there's, there's an automatic bias there. Um, another fact is we don't actually know what the Russian objectives are. You know, people say the Blitzkrieg attack on Kiev and Kharkiv failed. At the beginning, but there was no you know, blitzkrieg. Is putting what the Germans did: put all your, you know, all your tanks together and launch with, you know, an artillery, and you launch a tremendous attack, which is what they didn't do. They seem to have thought they'd be welcomed with sort of flowers in uh, Ukrainian cities. So they sort of went in there and um, without uh, tanks initially. So I think that uh, we don't have a sort of clear picture of what the Ukrainians have achieved, but also, I mean, they're obviously still there, they're fighting hard, they've inflicted a lot of casualties, they haven't lost their cities, so, you know, this is plus, plus, plus from their point of view, but we don't know if other things have been happening. Secondly, we don't quite know what the Russian objectives are. You know, again, one can say, well, they didn't take the cities, they don't seem to have, uh, seem to be making slow progress, they seem to suffer casualties. Uh, all over the place, so it's minus, minus, minus. But uh, you know, then I think you can jump to conclusions very quickly. You know, all wars, you know, have uh, are also propaganda wars, um, and it's not just the sort of the public, but sort of journalists tend to. Where do they get most of their information? Well, they get it, you know, from the Ukrainian government, mostly. Some of it they see on the ground, but they need to be 
often to be facilitated by the Ukrainian government to go to these places. So it's not just, it's not an, necessarily an objective view. Um, so we'll see, um, you know, how far have the Russians really been wanting, you know, they haven't been able to take these cities, they haven't encircled them, they haven't, what is the level of destruction in Kiev, in central Kiev, not according to what people say. Elsewhere, it's always difficult to judge the level of destruction. You know, I've been in places like Mosul and uh, Fallujah, Beirut, and so forth. And, you know, often you see buildings along the roads, the main sort of roads that armies use have been smashed up, but then the houses behind are kind of okay. And sometimes they're not. And sometimes you can see houses that look okay, you know, blocks, but when you get close, you realize, you know, they've been gutted. They're still standing there. So it's very difficult to judge that sort of thing. So I think it's a bit premature to think, you know, that people are saying suddenly the new conventional wisdom is the Ukrainians are winning. I think it's certainly premature to say that. Right. Uh, and in the same line of thought, naturally, is, is this idea that you just mentioned about uh, uh, suggesting that the Ukrainian people will not resist, you know, like they will, as you were describing, you know, that they will just embrace the, the presence of the Russians back into their um, country. I don't know where, you know, there's no doubt the Russians got it very, very wrong, or Putin got it very, very wrong. Uh, you know, but it's not, it's not unprecedented, you know. I mean, I remember, I go back quite a long time, but the first sort of episode like this I covered was in 1980, when, you know, the question of would Saddam Hussein uh, attack Iran because, uh, uh, you know, to make some territorial gains, we just had the Iranian Revolution, the overthrow of Shah Bahamani, and I, I was just been in Iran, and I'd also been in Iraq, and I got back to London, people asked me this, and I was sort of rather saying, well, I don't think it's going to happen because the incredibly stupid thing for the Iraqis to do. And Saddam Hussein sort of, at that point, his tradition was rather cautious. He ended the war in Kurdistan. Um, uh, he had no track record of starting wars. And it was a really dumb thing to, for Iraq to attack a, a country that was three times bigger than itself when uh, against a regime which... Uh, you know, the army might be disorganized, but was at that point massively popular and had lots of fanatical followers. And soon after I was saying that, that Saddam did exactly that. So, you know, it's amazing how governments do these incredibly stupid things. You know, that the sort of kids selling cigarettes in the streets of Baghdad would have told you, you know, that's a really bad idea. But nobody could say that to Saddam. Why not? Well, Saddam, uh, he knew a lot about Iraq, but he didn't know much about anything outside Iraq. Second, I remember a diplomat, actually a Russian diplomat telling me, uh, you know, he said the problem about, you know, if you're with Saddam, the only one of his chiefs or lieutenants around him, his advice, the only safe thing to be is 10% tougher than the boss. Now, I don't think it worked quite like that with Putin, but I don't think it's, you know, I don't think that people who contradict stick around very much long in so he's sort of in a circle which he's been made up of these former kgp guys who he's known for years they're not actually soldiers um and uh uh who just uh 
agree with him. You know, generally the quality is pretty low. Um, you know, it's pretty clear on the day that this happened that all these sort of uh, Russian experts on Ukraine and international affairs were all completely sort of shattered by the news uh, and kind of saying briefly, they were saying so, no, they've shut up. Uh, but, you know, governments are always doing really dumb things. Why? Because guys at the top tend to get extremely arrogant. They tend to think they sort of know about everything, you know. Um, you know, in Britain, Tony Blair, prime minister in 2003, pretty smart guy, um, all in favor of invading Iraq, um, disastrously from his point of view, ended his political career eventually, uh, really didn't know much about it. Um, and I think it's, uh, it's, it's hubris, it's arrogance in governments. Uh, it's also guys who stuck around a long time. Putin's been there for 22 years. Um, uh, the, the people around them, their advisors, you know, they may have had some guys with independent minds originally, but over time they all turn into courtiers. And they're all people who want to find out what the boss thinks and then agree with it. Um, so then you have sort of horrific mistakes. Well, you know, but that's, that's uh, if you look at the sort of history of the last few hundred years, people have been endlessly starting wars that, you know, any degree of common sense should have told them were real bad ideas from that point of view. Yeah, thank you for that. Thinking about uh, this now, I, one, one question that might fill in a gap is, could you say something about the 2013-14 the crisis um and how how that might the crimea and so forth how that might uh, fit into uh this story sure yeah i mean you had a you had a president of uh, ukraine who'd been uh, been elected who was considered pro-russian then you had this um sort of uh what the russians call a sort of color revolution you know taking over the main square rather like uh, the arab spring um and then uh, everything changes. You have an anti-Russian administration. Uh, the Russians take over Crimea. Uh, the, uh, you have the independent uh, uh, sort of pro-Russian republics in the, the Donbass, uh, the Donetsk and the Luhansk. You have a sort of civil war, particularly in that area in, the, in Donetsk which people, is about 14,000 people were killed, but they mostly killed in the first couple of years. Um, then you had an agreement, which is called the Minsk II Agreement, which was never sort of signed off by Ukrainians. Um, the, uh, but it sort of started from there, the Russians feeling that they were losing Ukraine, that was moving into the orbit of the US. Um, and uh, the West Europeans um, and getting increasingly sort of restive about that but without quite knowing what to do about it. Um, the um, perhaps under exaggerating the degree that they still had support inside Ukraine which diminished over the years. It should also be said, you know, the Ukrainian government, Zelensky, have sort of 
they have banned opposition parties, the pro-Russian parties. They closed down their, their uh, television stations, you know. There's no direction, of, no question about the direction of political uh, travel, which was away from Russia. Although Zelensky had in fact been um, elected as somebody who would uh, um, reach an agreement with the Russians. Um, now, the, 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 there were Russian grievances, but I don't want to go to the point of saying these grievances justified an invasion. Uh, and, um, but uh, the Russians and Putin in particular seem to sort of have no grasp of what was happening, what had happened in Ukraine. So long as the Russians were threatening to invade, they really had quite a strong hand. And, you know, lots of leaders were sort of coming to Moscow, you know, they could, uh, they were really doing quite well. What wasn't, uh, but it was always, something was obvious to me from the beginning, that if they threatened to invade, uh, this, they were in a quite strong position. If they actually invaded, this would be a calamity from their point of view, because they didn't have the troops or they didn't have local allies to successfully occupy and take over Ukraine. So they were taking on a war that they couldn't really win, that uh, there would be massive support from NATO and the US for Ukraine. They couldn't seal off Ukraine. Um, people sometimes give the example of Chechnya, and I covered the Chechen war in um, 1999, 2000, when it was at its most fierce. But Ukraine, uh, but Chechnya was much easier from the Russian point of view, because pretty small place, population about a million. Um, the, uh, the local population were divided between the, called the Wahhabis, which are the extreme Islamists, and the, uh, the government, the more secular government. And above all, you can seal off Chechnya. You can just uh, uh, seal off the passes from the south which is uh, what the Russians did, they got paratroopers. So it's not, you know, that was kind of easy, but you, uh, and the scale was small, but Ukraine was a whole, you know, it was a big place. It was always an extraordinary idea that uh, uh, actually launching the invasion would do Russia any good. Before we finish up, Patrick, um, let me just tell listeners once more that this program is talking about California, and this is uh, the radio station KZYX, Mendocino County uh, Community Listener Supported Radio, and our guest today is the celebrated journalist Patrick Coburn. I think you've just been talking about this, but maybe uh, to finish up this part of our our discussion and then turn to what we think might happen. The Ukrainians apparently have uh, vast stores of armaments, and really so do the Russians. You've suggested that even if Putin captures Kiev, uh, he's already been defeated. Um, what what exactly do you mean by that he's already been defeated? Um, I suppose connected with that is... Uh, should we hope that Putin uh, might have to back off, or, or um, what, what, what do you think about those those issues? Well, what I mean by defeated was that you know they had certain names in moving in according to uh, what uh, Putin said, that uh, which was basically to take control of uh, Ukraine, and you know they said denazification of the government and 
um, the uh, demilitarization initially, this is a bit vague. They seem to have meant um, getting rid of the government, having a new so puppet Russian government and uh, the um, Ukrainian army laying down its arms. I mean, this was never going to happen. It certainly didn't happen. So these original ideas failed. The idea of keeping uh, NATO out of uh, uh, Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian affairs, obviously the uh, the invasion has made uh, uh, involve NATO much more than in the past. So, so this is a definite failure. Uh, will he be able to take Kiev? Well, they haven't so far. They haven't even surrounded it uh, properly. Uh, maybe they can't, or maybe they have a certain red lineup, but they don't want to fight their way into Kiev because they think it might precipitate a general war or they couldn't hold it forever. Uh, you know, there's a, a great, conf one of the many sort of things that are unknown is what currently uh, the objectives of the Kremlin are. We kind of know what they probably were at the beginning, but what are they at the moment? I imagine they are, you know, to gain some territory, to take some cities, have some bargaining counters, um, and uh, then uh, compromise. You know, there are talks going on at the moment go up and down I you know that both sides want to keep them going but I don't think they're going anywhere at the moment till both sides have sort of tested their strength against each other at that point things might start happening but th that hasn't happened yet the um but um but I think that um it's sort of difficult to have this sort of war you know in the Middle East We've had wars, the, you know, the endless wars have gone a long time. They haven't necessarily, they've been hideous for the people who live in the country. They haven't drawn in other powers. I'm not sure you can have a big war in Ukraine that doesn't drag in other wars. Public opinion will ask for a greater intervention. They'll be watching this on TV, atrocities on TV every night. Um, the, uh, you know, you, you there'll be a sort of a natural tendency towards escalation. The Russians will want to shut off, maybe shut off Western uh, supply routes through Western Ukraine. There'll be a tendency to escalate. So could one have a, um, you know, a compromised peace? I think we will eventually, but you know, one of the uh, many bad things are happening. There isn't, people are sort of believing their own propaganda and their own rhetoric and speaking as if, in the West, that is, that getting rid of Putin and <coughs> total victory is the objective, um, rather than diplomatic moves. Now, you know, they might also say in uh, Washington and London and Paris, etc., that uh, Putin isn't sort of willing to talk yet, which I'm sure is, I think is very likely, because he hasn't got any, he hasn't made any gains. But when he does, then they should try and close this down. It's too dangerous. You can't have a war like this going on and on without it, uh, it escalating almost automatically. And uh, the danger of a conventional war between Russia and NATO or a nuclear war between Russia and NATO get uh, more and more uh, likely. Yes, this reminds me the, um, the policies we have seen just targeting the leader 
and pretending that by eliminating this person, then all the problems in those countries will be erased, which is not the case at all. So seems that like the state of this war it doesn't have a clear end by all the considering everything you have said today. Um, yeah, I think that's a good point, you know, that I think that people sort of, it's one of the aspects of demonizing the other side, you know, demonizing Saddam Hussein, demonizing Assad, that people quite quickly come to believe that just get rid of that very, very bad man and things will come okay. Often governments and people believe that, you know, but it just isn't true, you know, as we've seen in Libya and Iraq, you know, you, uh, Gaddafi gets killed and what happened? The war goes on, it gets worse, you know, half the country is devastated. Uh, Iraq, get rid of Saddam, you know, and you have years more war. Because these guys, Saddam, you know, he was a symptom, he was a, he was a symptom of uh, the divided state of Iraq, as well as a cause of, uh, um, of the divisions, and uh, the same was elsewhere. And I think, it, again, it is, you just sort of, if you wholly just focus on the war um, and reduce it to a very simple sort of black hats v white hats, good v bad, then this is a recipe for conflict going on and on um, because uh, people will not want to reach a compromise with um, a leader or a government which has been portrayed as absolute evil uh, and also they will convince themselves that it's only that government which has sort of led to all these bad things happening and you get this sort of as I said this over simple demonization which mm -hmm. um, makes it difficult to end the conflict Naturally, one of the things that this also reminds me is interventions like in Haiti, where they went in and just killed the president and pretend with that um, to control the situation and creating even more chaos. The same we see in other places in the world. This is what I was wondering about uh, the world being between imperialisms, the protecting certain economic equations that for the plain people are difficult to follow when we see the race on the on the oil and who is controlling uh, or who are controlling the grains and the supplies of gas and um, oil into that particular region, right? Yeah, I think in Ukraine, yeah, this is an element people don't really look at. I don't think it's the main driving force, you know, but the last few months in Europe, you had lots of sort of Top people in American, uh, you know, oil companies and uh, gas companies, you know, uh, talking about supplying American LNG, liquefied natural gas, to uh, replace uh, Russian gas. Um, the uh, you know somebody was telling me the other day that they'd been to a, an oil conference in uh, I think Texas and people in this line of business, and, you know that. The mood was very uh, buoyant because they could see if something like this happened, it was to their advantage. But I don't think that's the driving force. I think that that's a consequence largely of uh, what's happened. Maybe let me squeeze in a couple of other things. Um, first of all, do you think that there's there are uh, differences between the Americans and the uh, people in uh, Europe, or are there differences between Eastern and Western Europe? That, that's one question. 
um, uh, which uh, also is related to what seems to be, you know, the fact that weaponry is just literally pouring into the country. And then maybe to finish up, um, uh, I wondered uh, what you think we might, uh, uh, I suppose this is not your, you know, mission, but what we might um, be thinking or talking about or telling people, what are, are we to call for negotiations or for a ceasefire or, or for a, a victory of one side uh, over the other? Uh, I, I wondered if you would uh, dare go okay, in. The first question again was... Uh, well, I'm just wondering first... about NATO and, and um, is it, uh, are there differences between the United States and... Oh uh, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, there clearly are because you know, certain things like sanctions on Russian oil and gas this has a massive effect on Europe, on the on Germany and uh, Italy and uh, countries that uh, uh, are dependent on Russian oil and gas, while the U.S. is not. Uh, of course, it affects other people, so the price will go up generally. But um, so, you know, there's an enormous uh, difference of interest there. And I guess, uh, you know, Biden, President Biden is in in Europe at the moment, in Brussels, attending various conferences to sort of try and uh, hold this uh, uh, rather sort of divided coalition together. But in the longer term, you know, their interests are very different. Uh, you know, the East Europeans as well. Uh, again, differences as what their relations are going to be with the Russians and uh, uh, so forth. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, that's something which is always about to come into the open. And as sanctions go on, may come into the open more and more. And the second question was? About how we uh, discuss this, um, if you have an opinion uh, for us on, on uh, should sure. we? Sure, I, I, I think that people should <clears throat> see this one, they should see you know, as I said, people used to be really frightened of nuclear war in the, you know, during the original Cold War, and somehow they got out of the habit, but actually they should be even more frightened now and see that so long as this war goes on, the chance of this happening, you know, go up and up. So they should back a compromise peace, which obviously gets the Russians out of uh, Ukraine, which, um, you know, creates a certain uh, sort of stability there uh you know the ukrainians keep on you know now say that they don't want to join nato um you know there are other things which are fixable there what's going to be the state of uh you know the donbass uh you know the were the funny thing about this war is that there were sort of compromises and things that could be done that should have prevented this war uh it wasn't that anybody was there were each side had a position fixed position which was totally contrary to the others the uh, if ukraine you know who would guarantee ukraine uh security um and what happens to uh crimea is it recognized or not you know but there's no question the russians aren't going to pull out of ukraine you know that's mostly russian speaking etc uh so the actual cause of this war causes of this war are not when you know we're never sufficient to uh, uh, even justify a conflict, even in the most sort of egocentric uh, 
view of Russian uh, interests. Um, and in some ways, the diplomatic solution shouldn't be once the with total withdrawal of Russian troops is in there, shouldn't be that difficult. But you know, but we also know, you know, from wars in history, that the longer they're fought, people feel, you know, well, we've a lot of people got killed, you know, we can't, you know, we're not going to accept some sort of fuzzy compromise. It gets more and more difficult to arrange these things, which could and should have been arranged before the war started. Uh, but after the war has begun, become, you know, politically toxic for, uh, you know, for both sides. Right? Putin needs to bring something back from this to Russia after we started this war. And he claimed that he stopped uh, Ukraine becoming Nazi, which, you know, which wasn't happening anyway. He claimed to save the Russian minority from genocide. That wasn't happening, but he could certainly say both. Um, and you know, but he needs some other. He needs some bargaining counters. But will he then want a deal? Because you know, one of the menacing things as I said is the Russians got things so wrong at the beginning that would they go on getting things wrong? Um, would they? Would would the war simply continue? And if it continues, then it will escalate. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for joining us, uh, Patrick. This has been very informative, and we hope that our audience have learn more about the causes and, the, and and how things are unfolding and the different perspectives that happen in Europe in the, at this time. Uh, certainly, we are very concerned, naturally, for this war and how can, as you were saying, escalate. I don't know if you have a last uh, a question, Carl, or if you, Patrick, has last comments to leave our audience with before we say goodbye. Um. I don't really have anything to add to what I said, but I do feel uh, what's frightening about this war is that, you know, it, it has a sort of 1939, people were really sort of depressed at the prospect of war everywhere because uh, they knew it was like, but it's, you know, it's more like 1914. People are uh, sort of, uh, you know, saying, you know, go get the Russians, you know, blaming all the Russians and so forth. There's very little talk of compromise, though compromise will eventually be necessary. Uh, there's an air of hysteria, which is kind of frightening. And there's a sort of, uh, you know, it's perfectly reasonable to be anti-Putin. It's uh, right to be against the invasion. This seems to have grown into a sort of generalized Russophobia, you know, which is uh, can only make this war longer more toxic and more dangerous right and for the for the people simpler to align with one side against the other which is not really the answer to any of the human problems anyway unfortunately we have come to the end of our time so we need to say goodbye for now you have just listened an interview with patrick coburn and this is casey wyax mendocino county community radio station your host here loreto rojas and carl winslow presenting another series with talking about california and we'll be coming back soon with more. Goodbye for now. Goodbye. Thank you so much, Patrick. It's been terrific, very informative and helpful, I think, for us, for all of our listeners. Oh, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. 
This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. <laughs>